Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, we have a good friend of mine and a fellow uh, heavy metal aficionado, Kevin Assel. He's he's been a uh, attorney here for how long? Twenty one years. Twenty one years. Now, did you grow up in Florida originally? Uh, I've been here since I was 12. I've actually lived nine places before I moved here, moved around a lot, born in Missouri and really raised Missouri. in the Northeast. Yeah. Okay. Jefferson You're... Jefferson City. Ozark. Is that the Ozarks? My parents met at the Lake of the Ozarks, ironically. Is the Lake of the Ozarks what we've been seeing on the news, of, you know, I... shoulder to shoulder? Uh... It's got a skeevy undercurrent for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. But well, it, I mean, it's a cool place to go. My The sole extent of my knowledge of the Ozarks is the Netflix TV show yeah. and then the photo that everybody was circulating when they reopened it and everybody was it looked like las vegas there yeah there's definitely that element but i mean for the most part it's pretty idyllic and quiet now have you gone back yeah yeah several times all right now your last name what is what's the genealogy there what's the heritage where does that name astel is austrian my father was born and raised in austria uh he was a chef and he was trained over there uh, in, oh, wow. in your continental cuisine and you know gastronomy and all that so he came over here when he was 18 to sort of make his way and uh didn't know much of anything. Ended up after working in uh, Tavern on the Green in New York and out in Squaw Valley in California. He ended up at the Lodge of the Four Seasons at Lake of the Ozarks. Oh, wow. Where my mom was a housekeeper and he was a sous chef or a saucier. And that's where they met. And the rest is history. I was born in Jeff City and sort of raised in upstate New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio. Where in upstate New York? Uh, Utica area, Hamilton, Colgate, okay. Colgate University. My father's from Albany, so mm-hmm. I, that's I've been up there a, a couple of times, so I have vague recollections of that. Beautiful country and way different than the city. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. Two different New Yorks, for sure. Yeah. Now, are you only child? Any brothers, sisters? I have one younger brother. He's two years younger than me. Where is he now? He's here. He actually lives in uh, Lutz. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. What's he do? Uh, he is a certified home inspector. Oh, I need to get in touch with him. Cause... And he's got the master certification as well. He's really good. He's, his name is John. He works for a company called Barrel. Um, he does great work. He's one of these really particular guys. I mean, some might say anal retentive, but he's very fastidious well, good... about what he does. It is. He's, Being he's, fastidious he's... is a good uh, quality for yeah, that line He's of work. great at what he does. You know, we do first-party property insurance litigation mm-hmm. and so that's definitely uh, someone that I need to talk to. Um, well, he's got residential and commercial and all the three-phase and all the other cycle, oh, wow. all the certifications and ratings. Now, are you guys, it sounds like you're close because mm-hmm. of how much you know about him. How often do you talk to him? It, well, we do family dinner night at my parents' house once a week. Really? On Wednesday nights. That's awesome. So we still see everybody and all the kids and grandkids and all that kind of stuff, nieces and nephews. And I used to be in a band with him as well. Oh, I didn't know that. What does he yeah. do? Uh, he plays guitar. and you're a drummer. And he is the Nazi uh, like um, band leader. He's the controlling type oh yeah he's when the, he's in a band uh, yeah R- resurrection that used to be signed the ringo blast. and he's the well i was just a hired gun at the yeah, time i had yeah. come from my own band and yeah went to my own thing after I, well that. i definitely want to get deep into the music in a second cool but, um, now your parents are both still alive yep both alive and still okay. here they both live in lutes okay wow that's awesome and They're... now were you relayed uh raised in a religious household or was it pretty well sort of they're both catholic they're not currently sort of actively practicing so i was raised I was raised going to church. I never was uh, did my confirmation or communion or anything like that. But um, but I did go, and I didn't care for it a whole right. lot. Yeah. And does your brother have kids? He does. Two daughters. Are they? Where are they in relationship to your kids? Also in Tampa. Oh, you mean age wise? Yeah. Uh, let's see, nineteen and twenty three. Are they close with your kids? No. No. Um, so well, that's cool. I, I think that's so awesome. So I'm I, I'm an only child, and both my parents passed away within the past two years. So I don't personally get to do those family dinners anymore but that's my wife's italian catholic and so sunday nights you know they have a you, you don't know it's monday unless you have pasta on sunday and right. so everybody comes over and you know sometimes it gives me anxiety because i grew up you know as an only child in a quiet home and just you know being around all those people talking loud talking with their hands and yeah you know it but uh, but I think there's definitely value, and I and I do I'm not jealous of it, but I can appreciate it, you know. Yeah. Well, my mom is half German and half Sicilian, and the Sicilian part comes out quite a bit. Do they still cook? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, wow. they're both they're both retired and they're enjoying their retirement. But um, for family dinner night, they'll they'll trade off. Like for example, I think uh, three weeks ago, Dad made beef Wellington. Um, which was fantastic, and the sauce he had with it was great. And then for dessert that night was creme brulee. Ooh, and you know, 
all done by hand. The oh. best, the best way. Oh, his God. the the lobster, his lobster bisque. I judge every lobster bisque Against in it. my entire life, and it just it goes. It brings me back so immediately to childhood. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, so you said you came. Wh- when did you make it to Florida? I was twelve years old. Twelve years old. So yeah. where did you go to school? I well, I went to Lato for high school. Okay. And then USF for undergrad. Okay. And then where for law school? Mercer, Macon, okay. Georgia. How did you How did you find your way up there to Mercer? Yeah. Um, I had, I was sort of burned out on Florida. I mean, a lot of people are transplants down here and you get that sort of anti-Florida attitude, you know, a lot of New Yorkers and pencil or, uh, uh, Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia, which that's my, one of my least favorite cities in the country. I just got, it's, it's a divisive place for sure. It is. The people there are very odd. Um, they're sort of mean, but whatever. I just, I was just sort of tired of that attitude and. So I was calling. I got accepted to a number of different law schools, and I was sort of calling them up. I didn't know anything about Macon, Georgia. I knew very little about Mercer. I knew that they had a good research and writing program. But I called up there, and I talked to somebody in the dean's office, and I asked her just generally, what is the, what's the housing market like there? I mean, what can I expect as far as apartments? And she said, hold, hold on what a, a sec. What a smart question to ask. It was not even anything I would have oh, ever I considered. I didn't. I, had, I mean, I had never left, any, any, never left home, so I don't know what was going on. But um, so she actually put the phone down, and it was there was silence for about a minute and a half. She actually went downstairs and to the front and got one of those real estate magazines and went and picked that up and started going through it and saying, oh my God. "Where's some?" And I was like, "This is like literally the most helpful anybody has ever been with me." And right then, I sort of decided, "I think I'm going to come here." It's such a weird thing, the Bible Belt, because uh, as you know, I, I promise I won't get into politics with you, but I'll <laughs> I'll talk about myself a little bit. As much of a progressive liberal as I like to think that I am, I always just get the warm and fuzzies being in the Bible Belt. And my my uh, experience with it is my uh, family uh, had a house in North Carolina, and we would go up there, and everybody waves at you. And, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody will pull over if you've got a flat. Everybody will, you know. That's right. And so it, it's so weird, and it, and, and, it, and it, even to this day, rectifying my experience of people personally with kind of the political views that they support and hold, it's like there's there's a there's a chasm that or a disconnect there. It's like you are one of the most beautiful, wonderful people that I've ever had the pleasure of dealing with in person. But then I hear or see these sentiments conveyed, whether you know, and it's just like, how do I line those two things up? Which I'm not going to make you speak on that if you don't want to. But talking about making Georgia, right. you know, it's it's I, I'm interested in your experience in Georgia because well, it's it's interesting you say that because I I remember when I started going uh, when I lived there I was uh going to I shop for groceries at the Piggly Wiggly which oh yeah of course that's was, a southern deal yeah. it is and people would say hi to you and they would wave to you I mean just like pushing their cart next to you and I was immediately suspicious I was like, yeah, like what, what does this you, person want trying to what pick my pocket yeah <laughs> what's going on but then you sort of figure out well they're actually sincere about that and then you sort of have to look in, in, inside and say well I'm I'm sort of judgmental, and maybe I should. Maybe know. it's my problem and yeah. not their problem. Yeah, and, and, well, and, it, and it definitely changed me, and I think it made me a little bit more uh, conscious of of the fact that I had the same attitude that I was looking to get away from. Yeah, well, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Georgia for me is, you know, it it is the home of a lot of just amazing art. You know, there's a lot of great writers there. Yeah, a lot of great music. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously REM from Athens and a lot of different. Uh, stuff like that. So, uh, when did music enter your life? Was that something before college, before high school? Oh yeah, yeah. That that's been there for a while. So my father is a drummer. Um, oh really? And so he had a, a 1960- like a Chet Baker type of jazz duck guy. Uh, or was what's the guy from uh, from the Doors? Oh, Robbie. Uh, is it Robbie Krieger? Krieger. Krieger. Yeah, yeah. So he sort of played like that, where his drumming was all one continuous fill rather yeah. than uh, than actually a structured song. Yeah. Um, but I remember watching him play, and he had a 1960s Gold Flake Slingerland set that we had forever, um, and I would just get behind it and bang, really no... You How know, many pieces was it? Oh, uh, it was a four-piece. It was a kick, two toms, and a snare. Oh, wow. No cymbals? Uh, well, yeah, he had some okay. cymbals, but it was, it was a hi-hat, a ride, and I believe one crash. You know, very minimalist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I remember watching him do that, and and I knew I had timing just sitting behind it, and I've always been good at math, which really drums is a lot of math, um, and so that entered my life very very young. But what I, I can really point to when I was nine years old at Christmas, my brother was seven, my parents got me Black Sabbath. We sold our soul for Ooh. rock and roll on vinyl. What and number got, is that? Oh, I don't even know. I mean, it's it's a compilation. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then from then, my brother got Kiss, Double Alive, Platinum too, okay. and we wore those records out. And so, oh, yeah. I mean, I was listening to Foreigner and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that before. You know, heavier music, Bad Company. How old are you? I am forty-eight. Okay. 
I'm yeah. 45, so we're close. Yeah. Just trying to put put us in where we're at. I mean, I've always had a thing for Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. I had, you know. Well, what's your what's your favorite record though? Is it Rumors? Mine is Tusk. I like Tusk a lot. Um, uh, and there was a there was a documentary that I saw that uh, about Tusk, and it was really interesting the backstory there. But one of the things that I've kind of gotten into lately, and it's you're not even technically talking about the same thing, but uh, Peter Green and a lot of before Buckingham and Nick's joined the band. Mm -hmm. But what they were before that is really amazing stuff. And he's they have that guitar they call the Greeny that uh, Kirk Hammett owns now. It's a Les Paul that uh, I think it went from uh, I think it was Peter Green owned it, then Billy Squire owned it, and now Kirk Hammett owns it. Wow, yeah. that's a pedigree. Yeah, and it's been on all these albums, like all these songs, and so the it's called Greeny, I think, because it's Peter Green. It's actually a gold, a gold burst or a gold top, Les Paul. But uh, I the the way I found out about that is so I'm a huge no Oasis fan. They're one of my uh, what do you call them guilty pleasures. Uh, and uh, since they broke up, Noel Gallagher started uh, Noel Gallagher and the High Flying Birds, and that is a homage to. I think it was called Peter Green and Fleetwood Matter. There's a Peter. There's some version of that that he was basically name checking and creating that band. So as I learned about that, I kind of I don't know if this has been your experience with music is you kind of reverse engineer, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, you know I I liked Motorhead, which got me going backwards into Hawkwind, or I like you know right, right. all these types of things. You kind of start with what's you mm -hmm. know contemporary i never go, listened to diamond head until until metallica oh for sure yeah. well, i mean you look at i mean i think that i think that's how i learned of the misfits was from metallica because cliff burton was such a big yeah. misfits person and mm -hmm. danzig uh uh king diamond um who is the, so i'm thinking of the 598 ep they're, they're oh yeah, yeah the garage days yeah the first garage days yeah yeah because there, there's a bunch of songs on there that are all their killing like, joke yep yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Did you see? Did you watch the Murder in the Front Row yet? I have not. No. God, I'm gonna I'm gonna post a showing of it here. There's like six people that have been on the show. I'm like, you seen it yet? They haven't seen it. But anyway, um, so your father was a drummer that got you into mm -hmm. drums. Uh, did you pick up drums before your brother picked up the guitar? Or? No, he picked up guitar first. Actually, he'd been playing since he was about 12 and got pretty good. Very, very good rhythm player, decent lead player, but really good songwriter. Right. Which I think is. To me, it should be more of a talent if you're going to play. I mean, you can noodle around and musically masturbate all you want to, but if you can't write a song, then I don't want to listen to it. Very true. Very um, true. So he did that early on. I didn't really officially pick up drums until I was 17. No formal training whatsoever, just self-taught. I've never had a lesson to this day. Um, I'm a good drummer, not a great drummer, but um, I've played in some pretty extreme bands and some pretty extreme music. So And you've played live. Oh, yeah, a bunch. When bunch. did you start playing live? Oh, uh, when I was, ooh, was I 19 or 20? 19 or 20 with Epitaph, my first formal band. Wow. Yeah. But I'll, 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 real quick, I'll tell you my biggest show was at Big Spring Jam in Huntsville, Alabama, when I played with a band called Adrift. Okay. That was, um, that was Jack Owen from Cannibal Corpse. That was his heavy rock project that he and I formed together. Um, that bill, let's see, so we played, and then after us was Switchfoot, then it was Finger Eleven, then it was Leonard Skinner. Oh, wow. We played to 30,000 people. Leonard ended up playing to over 90, and we got to hang out with them in their tent, and they were absolutely the coolest dudes ever. They in were Alabama. So, they were in Huntsville, Alabama. Wow. Yeah. And wow. that we came back and we had to drive through a hurricane to get back to Tampa. It was That's a crazy crazy nightmare, man. So uh, was there a period of time where you saw that as your future as far as how you made money, um, what you did for a living or it, at one point, yeah. I mean, death metal sort of petered out in the Tampa Bay area um, from about 93 on. It was passe by that point. Nobody was signing. Grunge was really big. Yeah. Um, when I did the heavy rock thing, um, we got some traction there and sold a bunch of records, and Megaforce was going to release it, but we had some internal conflicts and ended up falling apart. But that's the last time I, I actually thought it was a goal or something that I would do uh, in lieu of anything else. Now, music is just complimentary. It's something I do just to keep myself sane and to have fun. You need it as a kind of a counterpoint to the type of work that you do. And, yeah. and I think I mentioned it at the outset. He's a fellow family law attorney here in yeah. Hillsborough County. So we're, we're, all, we're all crazy for doing we're what all we do. crazy and we're all in desperate need of something to a, a healthy release to. And I get to hit things and not go to jail. Well, that's just right. Well, it's funny. There's a so I had a, a Andrew Domestico on. He uh, has his band Blade of Surter that he was in here recently. And I always send him memes. And there's one as you know. Uh, the type of music I listen to and the type of person I am. And it's, you know, what, as I found with you and with him and a lot of other people that listen to these extreme type of music and are aficionados and follow it, again, it's kind of similar to that 
dichotomy of this is the Bible Belt. You know, it, they're the nicest people in the world. So yeah. how do you line those two things up? But I, I do really think it's a it's a healthy way to kind of get that out of your system. You For know? sure. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, are you the first lawyer in the family or I am. I'm okay. actually the first college graduate. Oh, actually, that's not true. My grandmother was the first college graduate. I'm the second after her. Okay. Um, and so, uh, when did you start thinking law? Was that in college? After college, you said you're a poli sci. It was. It was in uh, while I was finishing up undergraduate. I initially started off as pre medical. I wanted to be a dermatologist at one point. Oh um, man, you would but, be so much richer than you are right now. Uh, probably. And surgery and the, the, oh, nobody has a bad yeah. zit at ten thirty at night calling you harassing. Oh you or yeah, anything. there's no zit emergencies. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no. But I got burned out on the sciences. I was good at the maths, but I had gotten to differential equations and fluid dynamics and all the, the high engineering maths, and I just was tired of it because I went straight from. I graduated, and 10 days later, I started USF because I started in the summer semester, so I really had no time off. And that really, if I had just, I think, taken that first summer, I, I maybe would have made some different choices. So um, depending on who you ask, USF or myself, I got kicked out or I withdrew and or was asked to leave um, USF. And I took— There's a mutual uncoupling. Is yes, there we go. Calls it, yeah. There we go. And I, I, I spent four years sort of uh, in the restaurant field, and then— um, Oh, really? What 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 restaurants? Do you remember Hops? I, of course. That's fucking— So I— Threads I, with the sweet butter. The croissants, yeah. Oh, God. And, and their baked potato soup, which I my, that that recipe is ingrained in my head. I, I make that still very regularly. You send it to me. Oh, I can, yeah, that's easy. All right. Um, yeah, so I worked there when there was, uh, that was a new concept. Tim Kersey, who was uh, somebody that came out of CIA, worked for my dad at the Clearwater Beach Hotel. Um, he gave me the job, and I, it was when there was only one restaurant. And when I left, there was 111. And my brother also worked there, and he ended up being the vice president of research and development. And, they had great beer selection. I mean, they, they were, did. They were on top until of it. Apple South, the company that owns Applebee's, the most horrible food uh, yeah. chain restaurant in the world. They came in and bought it, and they took all the scratch stuff that they did and corporatized it, and then started selling them off. It was awesome. So it was tragic. I love that restaurant. I it was love good. that restaurant. There was one, I think it's on it was on Dale Mabry right next to the Barnes and Noble. I worked at that one, the South Temple yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that one. Yeah. Man, now I'm sad. So I did that for yeah. I did that for four years while I was sort of finding myself and this is you between know, college and law school? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And I was, you know, very heavy into the death metal bands at that point because I was So what time what years are we talking right now? Oh, uh, we're talking from let's see, I left USF in ninety and so that was from ninety till ninety four, because I started back at USF in ninety four. Okay. I just felt intellectually stagnated, and the whole band thing wasn't working out the way I wanted it to, and several tours had, had been canceled, and that's when I quit Resurrection, my brother's band, and just said, I'm just, I'm going to go back to school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, then we get to Macon, Georgia. You've, you've applied to different schools. Mm-hmm. The lady pulls the uh, real estate guide downstairs and goes through it with you. How was your experience there? Uh, it was as good as can be expected. I mean, the first year was brutal, as I think everyone's is. Did you feel like a fish out of water, or did you assimilate pretty easily? Or? You mean with the people of Georgia? Or, sure. Or, yeah, I mean, uh, so most of the people that went to law school were somewhat, you know, affluent, I guess. Yeah. Or at least had those trappings. Um, Atlanta's the same way, or Georgia's the same way as New York. There's Atlanta and everywhere else. Yeah. New York, there's New York City and everywhere else. Yeah. Most of the people that I knew were from smaller towns, and they're the ones that I still know, the ones from the smaller towns. The people from Atlanta, they were... Atlantans. I didn't yeah. really deal with them too much. Yeah. Um, it was enjoyable in that it, I, I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. I didn't have the greatest average in my first uh, first year, and then ended up doing really well the second and third year. Once you know you have more time, figure and, out how to game the system. Yeah. 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 And and once you're you know once your teachers sort of back away and, and yeah. give you the, the room to breathe and to grow. Right. Um, now, did I hear you say you did law review, or did you do any of that stuff? I did not, but I was the editor of the uh, law school newspaper for three years. Oh wow! Yeah, I did that, um, which was you know not really law related, but it was a lot of fun. And we we took it, we sort of looked at it as like a episode of the Daily Show in print. Yeah. So it was very tongue in cheek. Parody, lots satire. Of, yeah. yeah, lots of satire, lots of um, tons of sarcasm, and and some off color humor. Yeah. Um, and our. Um, our faculty advisor, Reynold Kozak, he was the contracts guy, and he was the the badass. You know, every law school has to have one. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was such a good guy to deal with on a one-on-one with a paper. Yeah. And, I mean, I had some conflicts with the deans where they'd call me down and you know, call me on the carpet for things that we put in there, and he would defend me like tooth and nail. I mean, it was so awesome. That's awesome. He's since passed away, but he was a hell of a guy. Now, did you know you were coming back to Florida when you were done there? Or? Yeah, I was married at the time, and my, so my wife stayed here. Uh, my then wife stayed here, and sort of wait a worked. second. She stayed here while you were up there in law school. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That must have been interesting. Oh, it was. I'm not going to ask you a lot about it, but I, that was all be good. Interesting. 
So, uh, okay, so you came right back here, mm -hmm. and then you started where? I opened my own practice. So I got my law license on September 19th. and What year? 99 okay. and opened my office on October 4th. Okay. I had some uh, some Disney stock was worth about 10 grand at the time, cashed it in and decided I'm going to give myself a month to open up an office and I beat it by a week and just basically started out there doing anything that walked in. And you did that for how long? Mm. Well, until I went in house with a company in 2005, so I guess I was doing that for I don't know, seven or eight years. And what did you spend most of the time doing when you were by yourself? Was it family law? Family or were you doing family law. stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, is that something you sought out, or is that just kind of how it shook out? No, actually, it's funny. So uh, my third year in law school, I took a divorce practicum, which was sort of a, more intense than just your regular you know, family law class. Right. And we had to um, actually take lower-income families, and we, did, we mediated for them uh, under the tutelage of an actual mediator, but we had a mediator, and that, that told me, I was like, I don't want anything to do with bankruptcy and family law. Right. And they ended up doing almost Both predominantly those. family yeah. law. Yeah. Well, I've not done bankruptcy yet. Family, yeah. But well. family, yeah. And honestly, it, as much as it's got its ups and downs, and you know this better than most, it is fulfilling, and you get to help a lot of people. Every now and again, it is, uh, but it, it's it's day to day, minute to minute. You know, it's always funny yeah. when people ask me. It's like it really depends on what hour you're asking me because yeah. you you run the gamut from from you know from the buzzer to buzzer. It's just kind of you know, and not only that, but it's so uh, schizophrenic. I mean, I can be arguing both sides of an issue in the same day. You know, yeah, for sure. I, there's a day. Yeah, this is getting kind of deep in the weeds for probably most of the people listening but i think the case law is kind of clear on it now but i remember in one uh, the morning arguing that someone could be held in contempt for not paying child support despite the fact that a modification had been filed and then in the afternoon arguing that they couldn't be held in contempt for not paying child support because there had been a modification filed and losing both of them oh my God. i was like how do i lose both sides of this argument that's funny yeah and now the case law I, th I think is relatively clear on that point that you you know kind of can abate it during that time period until yeah. it's brought before the court but uh in any event so you said in-house counsel was that kel or was that before kel no that was a banking company it was a high-risk uh merchant account company oh wow so what were you doing like collections or uh i was doing contracts negotiations um there were some collections involved um really setting up corporate entities, um, shelling out corporate entities. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was it was pretty full service. But the good part about that was is I was doing that, but I still was able to keep my practice open and do, oh, wow. that's do DUIs awesome. and divorces and stuff like that. Oh, so, I mean, sure. it was sort of like gravy on the side. That's that's, that's awesome. And you did yeah. that for how long? Two years, two and a half years. And then KEL or? Then back to, then back to practice, back to private practice okay. again. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, but pretty much predominantly family law throughout. Now, I yep. know your your uh, involvement in music. That's kind of part of what you do. Mm -hmm. That probably brings you a little bit more joy than than the other stuff. Yeah, and I, I still have. I, mean, I still represent some of the some of the bigger names in death metal. And I'll, I'll just off the top of my head, I can say DSI because they're good friends, and they don't mind me saying that. Yeah. Usually, I just you know other bands may want me to protect the identity, but yeah. but you know uh, the the top several bands in death metal are clients of mine. Well, I, you know, through uh, people that I know locally, I've gotten to be involved in various different ways or at least have a closer degree of separation with DSI, Cannibal Corpse, uh, mm -hmm. Morbid Angel. Um, you know, so that's always something that I just love about this area is what a kind of hotbed it is for that type of music. Uh, for sure. And, I, and I, 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 I'm sure it's been uh, analyzed, but I'm interested in your position as why do you think Tampa, Florida was kind of one of the uh, beginnings of that type of music? I mean, do you, do you subscribe to Chuck uh, Schuldinger as oh, being God. kind yes. of the beginning of that uh, with the band Death? Yes, I do. I, I mean, I, I am one of the biggest Death fans ever, one of my favorite bands, and some of my favorite music ever created in, in the extreme music world has, has been by Chuck. Yeah. Um, I will I will put it around more sound studios actually. I think because there were bands like um, like Nasty Savage that predated Nasty Death. Nasty Savage, yeah. I just I, I mean Nasty Savage, Atheist was around very early. 
Um, but you had bands like Toxic, like Ludacris, that had come here from New York and other places and recorded a more sound, and more sound put it on the map. And once you hear a lot of these early records by these bands, they sound a lot like, they have a lot of death metal influence in them, the way that they were being recorded. I mean, you didn't replace kick drums back then until you got to more sound. I mean, there were very few recording studios that were replacing anything. It was a, the Yamaha natural sound generators, what we all used back then. You didn't replace anything else, but you know, it was the, the clicky double kick. Who, kick who was the owner? Was that, was that by design? Were they seeking that type of music out or did um, this happen organically? Tom, it's, it's Tom and Jim Morris, their brothers. Okay. Um, and I don't know that they sought it out, but I mean, when you were a recording studio, sort of like a young attorney getting to take you know, whatever walks through the door. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. They did a lot of rock stuff, but they've done a lot of, um, a lot of radio, live radio. They've done a lot of um, orchestrations and orchestras. Um, I don't know if you've seen the website for the new Moore Sound. They're up in Sulphur Springs. No. It is beautiful, is absolutely it? beautiful. It's a smaller space than what they had. They sold Moore Sound to um, uh, what's the uh, Trans Siberian Orchestra? Trans oh. Yeah, so yeah. so TSO bought the studio, the complete studio, and mm -hmm. the land and everything. Well, you don't need. I mean, you know, as I'm sure you you you'll vouch since '90s to present. The space you need for a studio is really gone down. You know, you used to have mm -hmm. these huge mixers and reel-to-reel yeah. -reel and soundboards and all this stuff. And I mean, or you need just enough room to get the guys and the instruments in, and pretty much everything else you can. That's true. You can do things. Yeah, I call that guerrilla recording. You can do that. But I mean, if you're recording drums, you want a drum room. You want something that's tuned and sounds good. And that's a point that I've talked about on the show before and was driven home for me. So I'm friends with the guys in Wolfface, and uh, they invited me out to their studio over in Pinellas Park, and uh, they were recording a jingle for uh, Liquid Dev Mountain Water. And I had never had the opportunity to go and watch people record uh, before. So I got there and uh, was sitting in the sound, not the studio, but the, the soundboard room with uh, the bassist to Dan Byers, who who you know mix he's he owns the studio, he does all that stuff, and then Ryan Metcalf and uh, my buddy Greg, um, who he likes to kind of keep his idea his identity obscured because he's got a running beef with several bands. But um, in any event, I was probably I probably sat there for about four hours, and probably about three and a half of those hours was miking the drums, and the other thirty minutes was that, everybody else recording everything. That's quick. Yeah, that's and, quick. I, well, I, I take I've taken a full day to do mic and get and get song and get sounds and do your EQing and everything. But it's you know I've I've really in recent years just had such a, a a growth in my fascination and appreciation for drumming, and it's been for a couple of reasons. One is that experience there. Um, second is, and I think I've talked to you before about this podcast, the Crash Bang Boom podcast. But all the drummers from all the bands that we love come in and. There's so many considerations to it uh, that never even crossed my mind, whether it's the distance between drum heads, how high you have your cymbals, where your where your seat is in relation to it, uh, you know, how you hold your sticks, what weight sticks you use. Ergonomics. So much stuff to it. And mm -hmm. then uh, there, was a, there was a documentary that just came out recently called Slave to the Grind, and it was about the birth of Grindcore, and it was... Uh, uh, this band Repulsion that started, mm -hmm. and then uh, Napalm Death over in England, and then you get to Terrorizer and some of these other bands, but it was talking about kind of the uh, evolution of blast beats and cheat beats and D beats and all this other stuff that, um, you know, I was I was watching, uh, have you ever seen, the, there's a YouTube show, it's called What's in My Bag? Have you ever seen that before? I've not seen that one. It's uh, one of the big record uh, stores, I think it's in California, y you know what it is, I can't think Tower of Tower Records? I don't know if it's Tower or another one. I'll like I tell everybody, I'll remember it when the show's over and tell you, but um, they have your favorite artists go around and fill up their bag with stuff that they want, and at the end they sit there and they talk to you about whatever, and I was watching uh, Matt Pike and uh, his bass player from High and Fire, and they're talking, they're talking about this one band, Wolf Brigade, Wolf Brigade, I think it is, and said that they're one of the leaders of the DB world, and I was like, what the hell is DB? This is just recently, like weeks ago. Do you know that phrase? Mm-mm. So it's a type of blast beat that's got a little bit more of a jazzy swing to it, and it's this whole other music genre unto itself. But I was watching this documentary, and it was double kick drum, single kick drum, um, hitting the two toms together, hitting them independently, hitting that, like, there's all these different, I don't know if they're rudiments or what you call them, but different ways that you can do that. But 
Was that something that Death implemented? Did they have the blast beats early on? Death never had a blast beat in any of their records or any of their anything live that I've ever seen. So when did that come about? Like when was that? Um, so uh, well, the first time I heard it, well, Napalm Death's probably one of the first. Right. There's actually blast beats on some old Bad Brain stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you okay. can you can actually hear it. It's now Bad it's Brains now. Bad are the first death metal band. Now the, <laughs> it, now we're talking about a uh, probably an eighth or sixteenth note Explain snare. Explain what a blast beat is. So a blast is just really really fast thrash, and thrash is your typical. Yeah. Kick snare, kick snare, kick snare. Sometimes some people do a gallop, but that's that's thrash. And blast is just. Yeah. Just varying that. Now you can't do double time on your hi hat or your ride with blast. You're just doing one and the other. So it's basically just a, a fill over your kick. So it's a, so you're hitting three different heads at one time. Three different things, three different pieces. Right. It okay. could be yeah. Typically it's kick snare ride or kick snare hi hat kick snare cymbal china. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then if you add double bass underneath the blast, then you have what's called bomb blast. Okay. Now the bomb blast was created by Alex Marquez on the Malevolent Creation album Retribution. Okay. And I was there for that entire album to be recorded. Um, Alex and Rob Barrett, who was in Malevolent Creation at that time, were also members of a band from Miami called Solstice, who were good friends of ours. They used to drive up uh, to Tampa and come and hang out with us, just randomly bring a couple cases of Dixie beer or Bush Light, and we'd sit around and drink. And I, So I had Alex Marquez, one of the top drummers in death metal, sitting on my drum riser, critiquing me for several practices, which was nerve-wracking, to say the least. Yeah. But so... Blast is just extremely fast. I mean, Cannibal Corpse is one of the bands that does sort of your mid-tempo, um, mid-tempo blast, and it's usually with double kick, so it's more like, yeah. But it's all in one. It's not. It's not the. It's yeah. not the other. Alternating. It's, yeah. It's, everything's all together. Yeah. Yeah. So there's you know. It's got more of a tribal quality to it. It does. It's well. It just. It just feels like a wall of sound. It feels like a locomotive. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, Dave Colross, who used to play with Malevolent Creation and Hate Plow, he had metronomically some of the fastest BPMs in Blast I've ever heard, and we're talking up to like 320. Oh wow. But if you watched him play, he had such a level of peace, and his. Just his well, breathing, stretching. I mean, he he did it. You, he could be dead back there doing homework, eating a ham sandwich, and blasting like this. And just his range of motion was just so pure and efficient. Yeah, yeah. I I respect drummers like that. I can't do that. I hit everything as hard as I can, which is a impediment to actually blasting really fast because you can't. Well, it's, it's like so, boxing. It, you don't want to throw your hardest punch every time because you're gonna true gas out before the first round's over. So. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're playing live music, you got to play, what, 60, 90 minutes, 30, 60, 90 minutes. And, I mean, that's a, a long, you know, protracted yeah. physical effort. Uh, it, it is. And, and I, I like, and I mean, if, especially music that has a lot of double kick in it, you're running. You're basically running in place. Yeah. That's yeah. what you're doing. So, um, uh, so what was the other thing? Oh, but, so, but no, Death did not have any blast beats, although... Death, really, there's death metal prior to Death Human, and there's death, there's before and after. After that, you can take all of the death core, math core, metal core, all of the cores and all of the very technical stuff, you can trace it directly back to one point, and that's Death Human. Yeah. Well, I got, you know, that's where I started. It's funny because talking about working backwards, uh, one of the kind of crazier bands that I got into was uh, Botch and... Um, which got me into Dillinger Escape Plan, and then going backwards from Dillinger Escape Plan. You know, Dillinger Escape Plan was one of the first times I had uh, been made aware of the idea of uh, nerdcore or mathcore or mm -hmm. whatever else. Where not only are they hard time signatures to play, but over the course of a song, multiple time signatures <laughs> that you're playing. Yeah. And not only that, but the instruments. I think the instruments. Insane riffs. Insane riffs. Are playing different time signatures from everybody else. So that, then that's called a polyrhythm. But yes, they did. They did a lot of that. Yeah. Did you ever see Dillinger live? I did. I saw them in oh. their farewell tour at State Theater. Well, I saw them back in the day. I saw them with their first singer, and I saw them with their Dimitri second. Minikakis? Yeah. 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 I saw you them. Know, at... He and Ben Wyman are back together now. And really? Yeah. They they put out a song, and then then Greg has. Put out some very Dillinger-y songs recently yeah. after his Black Queen side side band. So, well, do you remember the old Orpheum where it was just a little triangular oh, yeah. sliver of a oh, stage? Yeah, yeah. I saw them play there, and oh, wow. you know how they do with their guitars and they act like they're going to kill yeah, people and yeah. hit each other. I yeah. mean, it was so brutal and intense, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but I really started, you know, I really started to appreciate, and this is this is kind of for me the dividing line of people who like this music and don't is some people just want the music to open itself up on a first listen. It's like, 
you know, and then there's like, you know, it's like wine. You know, some wine you can pop the co- cap and just drink it. Another one you have to sit there, let it breathe a little bit, mm-hmm. let it open up, you know, swish it around in your mouth, kind of let it reveal its taste to you. And, you know, that's that's what I love so much about hard and heavy music is the first time you listen to it, you're like, Jesus, that sounds like, you know, a car crash. Or it sounds like, but then, like, wait a second, listen to those drums. And wait a second, listen mm-hmm. to the interplay between the guitar and the drums and da 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 I mean, the Cookie Monster vocals I, is probably the part of that stuff that I appreciate the least. I think I think that's most people's criticism. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people do it to decent effect. Uh, I, I always, Chuck Schuldner, you could always understand. Yeah, this is true. But I so I always like when it's that type of music with a little bit more of a melodic, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously with uh, Dillinger, they kind of really when they got Greg started getting into the Mike Patton kind of Faith No More right. type of vocals, and I've always dug those and. Um, one of my favorite bands, Mastodon, uh, but of the four members, three of them sing routinely on every song. So that's pretty cool because you get, and then none of them sound the same. You know, right. uh, Brent Hines sounds like Ozzy. Uh, the drummer sounds like uh, Getty Lee, and Troy has kind of more of a traditional Viking metal type of type of way yeah. about him. So you kind of get all that stuff. So who are your bands like? Who can you can you give me a top five as you sit here? Ooh, a top five? I don't yeah. know. I have a document with some of my favorite metal records that I can let's actually talk, let's talk, reference. Oh, I, well, I want to talk bands. I want to talk records, and I want to talk drummers. Okay, I'll do all of that. Let's see. Where is that? Uh, documents. It's right here. Favorite, and I call it favorite albums of all time, which I sort of um, I add to. So I've got so probably so the two records that made me want to play drums um, are both thrash re- thrash bands and thrash records. Uh, Violence out of San Francisco, their Eternal Nightmare record is. Some people say Slayer's Rain and Blood is the prototypical thrash record. I say that's number two. Uh, Slayer's or uh, Violence's Eternal Nightmare is number one, but Sepultura Beneath the Remains. Oh, I, and, and most people say Arise is their is their crowning achievement. I say Beneath the Remains is so pure and so. It, there's so much violence on that record, and it is unstoppable, and it's catchy as hell. There is no filler on that record at yeah. all, and it is a thrash masterpiece. Well, they kind of they kind of had a didn't they have kind of a master of puppets, uh, a, a ride of lightning master of puppets? They, they had beneath the remains arise, and then chaos AD. Yes, so like they're three big, yeah, perfect records in a row. Prior to of, them falling apart and everything. Yeah, yeah, and then they went different singers, and the brothers split up, and they yeah. formed a bunch of side bands. But that was kind of their middle three like metallica had yeah. that you just can play them all beginning to end and they're so good and well and beneath the remains where was it mixed it was mixed at more sound by scott burns was who, it really? who did our second demo yep i did yep. not know that it was recorded in um in brazil but then they took the two inch reels and they brought them up here and mixed them with scott burns at more sound that was actually scott burns's first big record and first big break my entry point for them was chaos ad and then i think i went territory great, territory great territory song. and then what was it chaos or the the instrumental yeah yeah, mm-hmm. I love that too. Was that the third of the three? Yes. It was Beneath the Remains Arise and then Chaos CD. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I think I, I came upon them with Chaos CD and then went backwards. But all right, so Violence, Chaos, so those are those are your albums or your bands? Um, but, well, both. And again, this so, is. So give me three more albums Overkill, Feel the Fire. Um, Why? Have you ever listened to Overkill? I haven't really, surprisingly. So, so I saw them recently. That was actually the last concert before this whole. Quarantine thing went down. Or everything I think I remember I saw, you telling me that. Yeah. I went to Overkill and uh, and X Hoarder, one of my favorite bands. So you got I'll, the shirt on, yeah. Yeah, and of course it's the Law. That's the one of the records. Ironic. We need course. to make a, a law firm shirt for you that looks like that. So <laughs> that law. would be cool. Yeah. Um, so, so you said which one? Why which one? Overkill. So Bobby Blitz, their singer, has always he's he's got a very operatic style of voice, um, which fits in some metal bands and doesn't in others. Overkill is an unabashed, unapologetic thrash band, and always have been. Their first two records, Feel the Fire and Taking Over, are, are seminal records to me. Feel the Fire has a very basic production to it. It was um, Alex Perialis at Ithaca Sound in New York. He also did a lot of the early um, Anthrax stuff and Nuclear Assault that didn't have a whole lot of bottom end. It was very mid-rangey and, yeah. and trebly. Um, but that record managed to have some heaviness to it, but it was just clean. The songs were great, and I'd never heard anything like that before. That and Testaments, the Legacy, at, at that time, and actually, Feel the Fire came out in 84, so I mean, think about that. That's yeah. a thrash band that came out prior to Rain and Blood. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I Where appreciate that. Where was that in relation to Kill 'Em All and uh, Bonded by Blood? Kill 'Em All was 83, so that and was Bonded only a year Blood after. Bonded by Blood would have been right in between. Well, right Bonded by Blood was actually recorded before Kill 'Em All released and after. released after. That's and right. If you watch that movie, they blame 
the trajectory of both those bands almost squarely on a delayed release and the shitty cover art for that yeah. for that record. But if you look at Exodus's body of work over time, I mean they've I mean Gary Holt is a songwriter. He he still writes great riffs, hell of a lead player. And I mean now that they've got Zetro back in the band, I mean they're writing just as good stuff as they ever did. I saw him at Slayer's farewell tour, and I was on his side of the stage and just got to watch him the whole time and had such a blast. And funny story, which you know about, um, but uh, months and months later, I was, you know, I'm always, I'm always fighting with uh, my health as far as losing weight, you know, keeping the weight off. And my wife's like, you know, I, what can I do to help motivate you to go to gym, all this other stuff? And I was like, I, I'll go. I'll, it's always I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I feel like Cameron and uh, Ferris Bueller. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go when I go. But uh, one day I came home and she said, "Do you know who this is?" And she held up a picture. I was like, "Yeah, it's Gary Holt. He plays in Slayer and he was in he was in Exodus." And she's like, "Okay, well, this. I got you something." And she bought me a cameo from Gary Holt. You sent me that. I still have it, and I watched awesome. it all the time. And I had just seen them in the farewell tour. He's like, "Hey, Josh, you're a lawyer. That's pretty cool. I didn't do too well in school." Blah 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 blah. And <laughs> you know, you're here. You want to? And I think he's a vegan, actually. So yeah. that was kind of cool. But I, that was. And my wife does couldn't. She couldn't. She couldn't tell you a Metallica album song, member of the band, like not her world at all. And if you go through Cameo, you have every opportunity to find some crazy person that no one's ever heard of. And somehow, you know, she found Gary Holt on there. So which big I mean, points to her for that yeah, one for, totally. forever. So, all right. So we've done Violence. We've done Sepultura. We've done Overkill. We've done what's number four. Did we say four yet? So the first Metal Church record okay. is fantastic, and it was produced, one of the first records that Terry Date produced, and Terry Date, everyone knows from, he produced all the Pantera stuff. Um, Pantera, who my first band, Epitaph, opened for on Cowboys from Hell, one of the best shows we ever played. You opened for Pantera? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Hung out and party with them backstage, too. Oh. It was a blast. Surprised you're awesome, sober yet. Awesome story. Well, back then, I didn't do anything. I didn't drink. I didn't party in any way, shape, or form. Oh, wow. So I was just there. But well the, let me tell you the most surreal part about that real quick, and I'll, I'll be brief what with this one. This? this was 1991. It was Cowboys from Hell. Um, so we were in, uh, it was at the Ritz in Ybor. Yeah. And there's two rooms back there. There's the big green room, and then there's the purple room. Right. And the big one is for the headlining band, and the little one's for your opening bands. And, of course, we're in the little one. So we're back in there, you know, getting ready. I had my practice pad out and everything, whatever. My drums were already set up on stage. We're getting ready to do sound check. And uh, Dime comes in, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, we're waiting to play. And we were just like, oh. Because, I mean, that record is, that, that Cowboys from Hell is my favorite Pantera record. Most yeah. people say vulgar or whatever, but, mm. um, so that was mine. He was like, get in this room, come hang out with us. And they were just as cool and accommodating, I mean, as a big act already Even on Atlantic. Phil? All of them. Everyone he seems like a sociopath. <laughs> I can't figure him out. I, I think that probably happened over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, when you're that much not of a, that he's a not hero. Talented, but he's oh no, just... he he is. But he was he was cool back then. But so so we go into the room and you you pass a green couch and there's Kronos from Venom sitting oh, wow. on this couch. He's got a bottle of Jack Daniels in this hand, a beer in this hand. He's got a Jamaican sized cone shaped joint in his mouth, and he's feeling no pain. I was just like. Why is Kronos from Venom at a Pantera show in Tampa, Tampa Florida? Florida? Yeah, it was just it was really bizarre. So yeah, I, I remember that like like it was yesterday. Not to mention, so I did sound check, and you've, I'm sure you've seen shows of the Ritz. When you're a drummer and your drums are set up, and you get to do sound check by yourself as a drummer, yeah, you, it's only you playing in a in a hall. It uh, sounds fantastic. It's, it's the biggest ego boost you'll ever have. So I sat there and I was getting ready to be done, and then I heard from behind me. I heard, "Hey, uh, can I play your set?" I turn around. There's Vinny. And then, so he was endorsed by... For the by, show he wanted to play your set? Well, no, he wanted to play it just right then oh, while okay. I was doing sound check. And he was endorsed by Tama. He played yeah. a, if you remember, he had a set that was, uh, it had a cover that looked like it was made out of bricks. Yeah. So I played a Remo set, and it was a composite. It was mahogany birch and a couple other things, but it was a pulp wood, and then they cast it into a drum. They sounded fantastic. And the kick drums I had were the cannons. They were 22 by 30. So they were huge kick right. drums. And it was a gunmetal gray wrap. So Vinny, I was like, please do. So he got on my set and he wailed on yeah. it. And I mean, watching one of your drum heroes sit there and play your own set, I'd never had that happen before. Yeah. And I mean, I still, still never have. But what's interesting is, so they played Tampa with us that night. They played Miami three nights later. He, he, I can't, I'll, I'll use the, I'll, I'll, I have to be careful with my, my phrasing here. He got rid of the Tama endorsement and went to Remo and got them to deliver him that same drum set I have in the same color and endorse them for two tours. Wow. So 
You're a part of Pantera history. It is. I mean, obviously it was passive. I don't have anything, you know, it wasn't anything like I, I talked him up about it or anything, well, but he liked badass. he liked the way it sounded so much that he went and that's what he that's what he got and that's what he played. That's insane. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Try the last show, it's funny cuz what the last show that I saw at the Ritz was one of my favorite drummer performances, which was Cody Willis for a band called Big Business. But they were also the rhythm section for the Melvins on three albums. Oh, nice! Yeah, I, my my buddy is really into the Melvins, and I've listened to more of them since I've since he's lived with me than I have before. I, I don't know if I ever sent you the video, but uh, for a while while there, they they did two drummers. It was Cody and Dale Crover playing at the same uh, time. Dale's awesome. Well, not only that, but one is left-handed and one is right right-handed. So everything that they were doing next to each other was the mirror opposite of each other. Hmm. And uh, the song Night Goat, which is my favorite Melvin song, it starts off with this sick drum beat. And watching them both, they're just looking at each other. And you know, I mean, the, 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 the only better part than playing an amazing drum part would be playing two amazing drum parts right. at the same time. I mean, I've, just... I've never understood drummers like that that can that have that level of timing. And, and unless they have indoor monitors and they're playing to a click, the fact that they can do that. And there's a lot of southern rock bands that have done that in the past, too. Yeah. I don't. I don't understand that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was amazing. So another drummer performance was uh, Dale Crover, who I've seen twice at the Orpheum, and I mean he's pushing fifty, if not in his fifties, and he is not a, a, a formidable guy physically. Just beats the living hell out of those things. I mean every Melvin's record, you know, they just just drilling us. So that was that was epic. And then I saw High on Fire there, Chris Maggio, the drummer for that. Uh, I've never seen, but I one of the ones my big people that I want to see is uh, Ben Kohler, who drums for uh, Converge, and uh, All Pigs Must Die, and he's been a bunch of a bunch of other bands. And then last for me, and this is my segue into asking you drummers, is uh, Ron Daler from Mastodon, who I've seen yeah. twice. And he's just so, he's just such a fun person between, you know, he's a throwback to a certain type of rock. He really likes the prog metal. He sings almost kind of like a Dio type character uh and all while drumming which i just think is is, uh, is i don't understand drummers that can sing at yeah. the same time i don't yeah. know how you can coordinate all that i mean i'm trying to think of them and it's and it's bron daler and uh what's his face from the eagles <laughs> oh yeah is it don fry uh, no henley yeah. henley 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 yeah i get a mixed who, up who are some other drummer singers that you can think of oh geez I mean, it's not that common it's a pretty tough no i mean you'll see, you'll see a couple of them well dave grohl yeah Dave Grohl, who was but, a, but not usually while he was drumming. Though. Typically, no. But I've seen yeah. him do backings where he swings it in and then hits it out and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Very talented drummer. I mean, I know a lot of people hate on the Foo Fighters, but I really, I've always I liked them. I love the Foo Fighters. They're I, another one. They're they're an oasis. For, I mean, I'm all about that stuff. You know, I, I just think if we we talked about a math and there's a uh, there's a book I have. I think it's in my office. Might have taken it home, but it's by David Byrne, and it's I think it's called How Music Is Made or something. But there's very much of a David Byrne from the Talking Heads. Yeah, oh. yeah. I'll show it to you before you leave. But it's very much there is a formula. There is a pleasing, you know, uh, counts. You know, there's a, what, what do you call it? The, the count to a song. There's what's more pleasing and what isn't as pleasing. And same with like guitar, major notes and minor notes, and you know, things that are pleasing to your brain and things that aren't pleasing to your brain. And really, you know, there is kind of a an art, but a science to it as well. And so. Uh, you know, with with the Foo Fighters, same with Oasis, and uh, you know, you could go back to the Beatles. I uh, heard Mark Maron, who's kind of my podcast hero, he refers to the Beatles as Christmas carols, because almost every Beatles song, everybody, if you start playing in a room, everybody in the room can start singing it, just like a Christmas carol. And I think it has to do with they just figure out that melody and, and, and can get it down. But so anyway, so we talked about my favorite five drummers. Let's go through yours. Oh God! You, know, it, it, top look, top look, five isn't going to happen. In five uh, minutes. Okay, so I'll just talk about several. So Perry name Stric the first five that come to mind. Perry Stricken from Violence. Okay. Uh, Igor Cavalera uh, when he was with Sepultura. Who's he, he playing with now? He has his own thing. Not Soulfly. Uh, or Cavalera, Cavalera Conspiracy. Conspiracy is, yeah. He's doing that, but that's that's what you'd expect. But he's got his own project, and it, it couples him playing drums with a lot of techno stuff and these little electronic do jiggies that I don't even know what they are. Like they're almost like scratching and stuff while he's playing. I watched a couple of videos, videos of him doing that and I was just, I wish I hadn't Yeah. sort of tarnished my, my memory of that. Yeah. Um, Sean Reinert, uh, oh, yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, with Cynic. I, I mean, I knew and, them. I knew those death. guys. Yeah. But I knew them before they were in death. Which album did he play on death? Human. Was it human? Yeah. 
Because I also I always I always love this uh, Richard Christie from uh, Howard Stern. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I don't think he was on any of the albums. He was just the well, tour. Richard, Richard Christie's a friend as well. He was actually living at Audio Hammer Studios with Jason Sukoff in Sanford. Okay. Um, when I was recording over there, and Jason's a long-standing friend. I've known Jason since he was 17 years old. Oh, wow. He's well, he's actually 38 now. 38. So wow. I've known Jason that long, and Richard lived with him for a long time. He used to be he used to do all these weird little. Um, I don't know, like three-minute movies of just like dragging armadillo corpses around. He's and like a Forrest Gump of drumming. <laughs> yeah, now, now you want, now he is a transcendent drummer. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, that, that guy, yeah. I've seen him wail on sets just over Jason, just set up and just playing around with them. And yeah. um, his playing on the Sound of Perseverance is great. He was on Sound of Perseverance. Yeah. Okay. He, and he also was on Control Tonight too. Okay. He used my he used my V drums on Control Tonight. Really? He did. I like Sound of Perseverance because it's got the uh, Judas Priest cover, the Painkiller on there. I love that. That's the best Painkiller cover I've ever heard. Yeah, pretty, pretty. Um, Richard is—he's—he's he's sort of overpowered as a drummer for all that kind of stuff. And that's honestly that's one of my least favorite Death records, only because Chuck's voice had changed by that point, and you know, we all know why. Yeah. Um, it just didn't. It just didn't like. Symbolic is my favorite Death record. Yeah. Probably followed by well, definitely followed by Human. Um, so, I mean, Sean Reiner with Cynic, I don't know how much you know about Cynic, but they put out that record Focus in 93. Mm-hmm. I got so it. So my singer and guitar player in Epitaph with me and the stuff that I shared with you, he was the guy that did all the heavy vocals in Cynic. Yeah. So, you know, we all, we all went on from Epitaph. Mark and I went on to Resurrection. Tony went on to Cynic. Uh, Wayne went on to a band in New York called Cease, a hardcore band. I've heard of Cease, um, yeah. Yeah, they put out a couple records and some seven inches and splits. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Sean was, uh, I mean, when I say he was an influence, I, I always worshipped him because I can't play a third of what he could, and he just did it so comfortably. But he'd been playing since he was four years old. Well, the other thing that I love about him, and I didn't know this till the very end, is that he was gay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which I love because I wonder how many of the fans, you know, because... There's kind of a, a, a you get various types behind this music. You have the kind of the sure. intellectual people who like it for artistic reasons, and then you kind of get the the boneheads who you know just like to be aggressive. And yeah. you know this guy who's just back there, just crushing it. You know, I I just love that that about him because you know I always love. I was talking to Gabe uh, who writes for uh, Creative Loafing, Gabe Echazabel, Echazabel. And uh, we were talking about if you spend any time and think about Little Richard, what he was able to pull mm-hmm. off, how popular he became as a gay black man <laughs> yeah. during that time frame, you know, just taking everybody's bigotry and everybody's, you know, uh, racism and prejudice and whatever it is and and saying, I- I'll see that. And I'm going to make you like me no matter what. And so, you know, comparing Sean Ryan and Little Richard is kind of a maybe a stretch, but. Um, as far as how seminal they each were to their own genres, well, I don't, probably I don't not. So. But yeah. I, so, anyways, I just always thought mm-hmm. that it was kind of a cool thing. Anyway, yeah. keep going. No, uh, I mean Sean was great, and uh, if you've never heard us playing in Agora, A G H O R A, you should listen to that. I think I, uh, I think you sent it to me. Entheogenic frequencies and more yeah, yeah. record. He doesn't play on that one, but um, actually, that's the drummer from King Diamond. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So let me go through here. Oh, so. Exhorter was one of my favorite bands as well, and their albums Slaughter in the Vatican and, and The Law are two of my favorite records. They had a drummer called Chris Nail. He was a, an absolute animal, but he was very technical about it too. I love his playing on this record. Uh, he can do no wrong. I mean, just sick doubles, double patterns, um, some polyrhythms, and, and, and crazy thrash. Good fills. I really liked him. As far as, um, I don't have a whole lot of drum like mentors from like the 70s or the 60s. Bill Ward would be the only one, really. Um, and Judas Priest always had a revolving door of drummers until Scott Travis. Um, and, you know, anyone that's... Dave Holland was sort of a chimp behind the kit. But he was, he was also there for when they were the most popular and they had their most hits. Yeah. So I can't fault that. I mean, can I think of how I would have played things differently? Sure. But, that, I mean, how are you going to change Screaming for Vengeance and make that better? Yeah. You're not. Yeah. I mean, I don't care what you do. You're not going to change that. I mean, it's, it's seminal for a reason. Where are you? And, and, and this is so hacked to talk to a drummer about this, but I just want your opinion. Neil Peart? Uh, one of my favorite drummers as well. I'm yeah. a huge Rush fan. Yeah. Another band that never put out a bad record and continued to put out great songs. The fact that he was really a lot of the creative powerhouse behind the lyrics and a lot of the riffs and everything. That documentary on Netflix is amazing. Um, I don't know about that. Which, is it the one that's like about an hour and a half long? I think so. It came out about four or five years ago. Yep, I did. Yeah. I watched that recently. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I, I was never much of a big Rush fan. I had a hard time with Getty's voice, but um, and prog music. I've been kind of late to the game on prog music, but uh, that documentary definitely gave me uh, 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 a new appreciation for them. But 
you know, one of the conversations I always have with my buddy uh, in Wolfface is, uh, you know, he, he's got this aversion to what he calls noodling. He doesn't like noodling on guitar. He doesn't like noodling on Then drum. he hates dream theater. Yeah, well, uh, but I always talk to him about, I like musicians who it, it seems like the wheels are going to come off. So, like, Keith Moon's drum set wasn't even standing up when he was done most of the time. And technically probably not the most professional drummer in the world, but just beat the holy shit out of his drum kit. I mean, yeah, he was drunk. Yeah, he was overweight. Yeah, he was high and all this other stuff. But yeah. I just, I love people who are almost at war with their instruments. And so uh, definitely the, the punk part of that, which we haven't talked about too much, but, you know, with the Misfits and, and, and some of these other punk bands, you know, kind of a different approach with the drumming. But um, it's just, it's, 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 it's a different world. It's a different world from the stringed instruments. It's, it's its own thing, and I've really just grown to love it over time. So, um, well, I'll give you I'll give you two more real quick because one I've already mentioned to you, and it's it's Alex Marquez who was with Solstice and the Movement Malevolent Creation. He played in Demolition Hammer for a little bit too, and he's he's more contemporary. But so you had to know Alex. Alex was six foot four, three hundred and forty pounds. He wow. played semi pro football. Oh wow! Um, he also had learned playing drums from when he was about five years old. He was from a Hispanic household. So he learned all the samba and the rumba and all that. He learned all the Latin time signatures, the fives, the fours, the, or the fives, the sevens, stuff that I can't comprehend. So he had all the rudiments and the dynamics there, but he beat the holy hell out of his set. You could watch him play and wonder how it didn't break every single time. Yeah, he was just, And he broke cymbals like it was nobody's business, yeah. but he was just that big. And he hit so hard, it'd make you cringe if you were near. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's a fan. If you've never listened to Malevolent Creations, Retribution, or the, the only, well, there's been another solstice record but it was a different band at that point the first solstice record some people call it the sentencing it is a technical tour de force of drumming guitar um james murphy does some solos on it um it's really it's really fantastic wow great record i'll have to check that out there was a loudwire article that just came out on facebook or maybe it didn't it just got reposted but it was uh perfect albums uh by metal bands and stuff and uh the only one that wasn't the only one that was on that list that I couldn't pull off of Spotify to make a playlist was, uh, I think it was a Carcass record. But um, Which one? Heartwork or Necroticism, Discanting the Insalubrious, Symphonies uh, of Sickness, Recapitrefaction? Oh, I'm a Carcass fan, dude. I'll have to check that out. Heartwork is Carcass's best record. It has one of the best guitar sounds of any metal record you're ever going to hear, and certainly of anything that's considered death metal. Yeah. It's catchy. Again, there's no filler on that record. It is. It hits you hard and fast. It's one you can just put... A, working out or doing lawn work or whatever just put it on repeat and it's just awesome yeah i'll have to share that share that list with you you know some of it i knew some of it i didn't um uh, a lot of it very death it was bathory was on there and uh what was the other one gore guts and uh gore guts is a we used to be friends with them and oh were you yeah um played with them there was dillinger on there let me see i'll go through this list with you real quick if i can find it gore guts their first record is erosion of sanity that one is great also scott burns the second one is erosion of sanity that one is colin richardson who also did all the um all of the he did some fear factory he did the carcass records um he did a trivium album um i've i've actually met colin a couple times but he was sort of Colin Richardson and Scott Burns. They were sort of the the big two at one point. And then you, then you got the uh, Scandinavian guys. The um, so we got uh, at the gates. At the gates, okay. So uh, slaughter of the soul, um, Bathory. Uh, what was the Bathory album? I don't know what Bathory album was. Uh, Behemoth, uh, the Satanist, Converge, uh, Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. Cryptopsy, who I didn't Cryptopsy, know. which yeah. one? None so vile or blasphemies? Or yeah. blasphemies made flesh of is one of theirs that's great, and then um, I can't remember the other one. But that that is a that is an so all the Canadian bands are really weird. They're all like Rush, but much yeah. more metal. Cryptopsy is one that will have your head spinning with everything that's going on. Yeah. Um, uh, Death Human, uh. Dillinger Escape Plan, Calculating Infinity. That's my favorite from them. Um, Dissection. Uh, let's keep going here. Emperor, who I didn't know. God Flesh. Jump in if you hear it. Uh, Gorguts. Mm-hmm. Which Gorguts? Let's see if I can do this without playing it. I played it. Uh, Obscura. Oh, really? Yeah. That's odd. Uh, Make Them Suffer. Never heard of them. Mashuga Obzen or whatever that Obzen, one is. Yeah. yeah, I like Mashuga, but I like stuff way prior to that. Uh, Morbid Angel. Which um, Morbid? Altars of Madness? Altars or Ble- of Madness. I like Blessed of the Sick better, but Altars is a good okay. record. 
Noctomysticism. You know that? Noctomysticism, I think yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Opeth, of course. Blackwater Park? Uh, no, it's not Blackwater Park. Huh. It is Ghost Reveries. Go- okay, all right. Pig Destroyer. Okay, that's uh, a perfect record. <laughs> uh, Pig Destroyer, Prowler in the Yard. Yeah, that's some serious grind. Okay. Um, keep going here, keep going here. Uh, Septic Flesh. Uh-huh, grind. Uh, Shining. I don't know them. Slayer, um, Seasons in the Abyss. Okay. Suffocation. Uh, Pierce from Within. Uh, I think it is Pierce from Within. Yeah, great album. Let's see here. Hold on. Let's see. That's a super, Pierce super, within, yeah. super heavy production. What do you know about that album? What do I know about it? What do you know about the band? I never, I mean, I've yeah. seen them a couple times. I don't okay. know them, I don't know them personally, but I mean, they, they continue to write pretty high level stuff. Yeah. Uh, Thy Art is Murder. Mm-hmm. Ulcerate. And then, of course, Venom. That was the, the, the number one best one. So, hmm. anyway. So, anyway, we talked metal. We talked drummers. We talked albums. Uh, but you do run a business. You do run a uh, law practice. And yeah. it's primarily situated in Wesley Chapel. Yeah. And aside from family law, what other areas of practice do you do? Uh, selective criminal defense. Just, I mean, just a regular DUI walks in the door without any merits. I really tend to refer that out. I want something with a little bit of juice and take something away from the state if I can. And are you playing in any other bands right now? Uh, Epitaph is back together. So okay. we, we remixed our, uh, our early demos, and that's coming out in August. Thanks for listening. That concludes part one of two of our interview with Kevin Astle. Uh, we get a lot deeper into music, uh, death metal drummers, and all these good things. So stay tuned for part two of two coming up in weeks to come. Good night, everybody.